On November 9th, join us for Benzinga's 7th Annual Fintech Awards. It's going to be a day full of networking, deal-making, and recognition of incredible achievements you won't want to miss. Today on The Raz Report, Jason Raznick speaks with Vivek Garapali, CEO of Clover Health. Here we are at The Raz Report with Vivek. Garapelli, how are you today? Good, good, Jason. Thanks for uh, having me on. Yes, no, thank you for coming on. Um, Clover Health is quite an exciting company. I mean, maybe people don't think healthcare is exciting, but what you're trying to do and using data in the healthcare space, we're going to get to it. But um, I want to step back and learn about how you got to where you got. So everyone knows Clover Health, but they don't necessarily know about your background and why you started this company, but not how you're ready for this company. You you have an interesting background. So let's go way back. Where did you grow up? So I grew up in a free old New Jersey, uh, home of Bruce Springsteen. Got it. Have you ever been to a Bruce Springsteen concert? I I have. I checked out that Broadway show he had on pretty recently. Uh, I heard that was amazing. Yeah, amazing. Okay. In school, what was like your favorite class? Like what did you like to study growing up? Love science. So... I, if I if I look back, biology was my favorite class. Uh, was very into when I first started learning about genetics and DNA. I, I just found that incredibly fascinating. Okay, and um, and then you, I'm assuming you were a pretty good student because you went to Emory. And is that accurate? I mean, I I, I definitely had some years where I I shined in in middle school and, and high school, and then there were some some off years where you know, I think it was probably maybe more focused on, on sports and uh, wasn't as academic, academically oriented. So, you know, turned it on when I needed to. Yeah. I think by the time I got to, to college, I was, I just felt this kind of desire to, to get out of college and, and start doing something. That was, that was sort of the mentality I had when I got to freshman year of school. Got it. So you wanted to get out of college and get to work and do something and build something. Anything, something, yeah. Just the the monotony of classes and academics is something that I I don't know. I just wasn't as as into it. I found myself, you know, probably many years later, enjoying. I, I love reading now about history, politics, everything related to that. But in college, I I for whatever reason just didn't have that interest as much as I do now. When you were younger, was there something that drew you to healthcare? I think there's a bunch of things. So, I mean, the main driver was both my parents are are physicians. They've been retired for a long time now. And when uh, I think this happens to a good amount of folks who have one or one or both parents as as doctors, I always thought I was going to was going to go to medical school. Um, And even at Emory, I was I was pre-med. And I just I couldn't imagine going to school for another four or six years after that. And Emory thankfully had a, an undergraduate business program that started junior year. And that, that allowed me to be exposed to something other than kind of math and science in a way that I really wasn't in, in high school or, or before. And, but I I would, that experience just with my parents, when you grow up with parents as physicians, that's a big topic. Healthcare is a big topic. Just service to to individuals is a big topic. Did they, given that your parents were or our physicians are were physicians or retired now did they want you to be a physician 
I would say they were probably neutral on it. If uh, I'll, I'll give a little bit of kind of like healthcare history um, up until the early nineties, uh, being a physician was a great career from uh, a day-to-day lifestyle perspective, meaning you got to do what you love, which is you can help people on a day-to-day basis. At the same time, you had a tremendous amount of flexibility on your decision-making on how you managed your patient population, uh, the administrative burden from health insurers and the ecosystem was, was pretty low. And if, you know, so folks who remember uh, the Clinton administration, one of the major initiatives was the, the advent of kind of what's known as managed care today. But that was, I think it was 1993, 1994, when that got pushed forward. And that was a big shock to the healthcare ecosystem, particularly physicians, because it really put this whole administrative layer on top of physicians. It really constricted a lot of their decision-making and created a much bigger admin burden, administrative burden onto them. So the nature of what it meant to be a physician changed a lot, particularly from kind of early 90s now, obviously through today. Uh, and so I think it got to a point when I was in, in college, so this was 96 to 2000, uh, if you were going to become a physician, uh, that was something that you knew you were walking into, at least if you were if you were familiar with what had happened. And that's something that uh, you have to really then want to be a doctor to also deal with kind of a lot of the changes that the system was going through. No, it's funny. It's funny you say that because I graduated um, college 2000 and I have a friend that his dad was a doctor, his brother was a doctor who was older and like there, and it changed, the medical industry changed where the doctor was doing a lot more administrative stuff. And so he went into the venture capital side of medicine versus um, being a doctor like the rest of the family, given what you're talking about. So one of the things I found interesting is you left Emory in your senior year, right, to start a business, but then you came back and graduated. Is that correct? It is. Uh- tried to start a business, failed business. Did you start it while you were in school? Yeah. So it was, I took a semester off. So a friend of mine uh, who I went to high school with was at UPenn at the time. And we, I I was very excited by, I got very into investing in in college, just public markets investing. And uh, Schwab had opened up a, uh, I think it was 95 when they first introduced uh, online trading. Um, so I had, had a, a small Schwab account and was day trading stocks. And uh, I would say a lot of what's happening today on in uh, what you see in retail investing, there's a, a deep familiarity I have with with a lot of what's happening today. Obviously, today's a much, much bigger scale than uh, the late 90s. But it was it was similar in, in theme where I think folks who were who were trading a lot uh, and I was one of those were just deeply excited by all the internet companies and technology companies, many of which have have disappeared, but a few of which are really massive today. And I think it was just very inspiring to individuals like me. Um, And one of my uh, friends kind of similar experience um, in terms of kind of, you know, what he was seeing out there and what we were getting excited about. uh, And we had this concept of, of essentially helping bring small businesses to, uh, online, um, everything from kind of law firms, accounting firms. Um, I think uh, we, uh, exciting idea, uh, very little knowledge on how to execute on it well. 
um, and how to really be thoughtful about building that type of business. Uh, so it was probably a failure kind of out of the starting gate, uh, but it was just seeing what was happening, I think really motivated us to, to be a part of that. No, that's beautiful. I mean, that's awesome. I know exactly the time you're talking about. Do you remember any of the companies you traded back then? So for example, I remember I traded Exodus, EXDS, Rare Medium, and they're no longer, but um, do you remember that, the, the heyday of those yeah. 96? Um, I was... I was very, so I would say back then I had essentially zero understanding of business fundamentals. Uh, so it was just pure excitement around yeah. uh, what companies uh, were saying they were trying to do. But I was just, I was, I was most enthralled with companies that were building the infrastructure for, for everything that became, you know, quote unquote, the internet. Uh, so that ended up being a lot of these uh, underlying infrastructure and fiber optics and so forth. So it was JDS, Fitel, uh, Uniphase, uh, SDLI. Remember the ticker symbol like JDSU and UN, UNPH and and uh, and they all started merging with each other. Uh, I should have realized something was off there, but it was it was just really mind blowing as to uh, the excitement around it. And the growth of those of those companies, but also obviously the bubble that got that got created out of that. Do you find time at all to trade uh, these days, or no? Yeah, I my I got deeply affected uh, in a positive and negative way from that from that investing experience in college. Um, so the, I did very very well on the investing side in college, and then lost all of it uh, in two thousand and two thousand one. Um, and I, I would say the same reason I lost all that money was the same reason I made it, which is I had no understanding of valuation, business fundamentals. I was just purely excited about, about the ambition and kind of the technology side of, of these businesses. And it was pretty jarring for me to, to have done that well and then have lost it all, not really understand, you know, actually why. And so, uh, you know, I ended up not obviously not having a successful business out of college and really had to kind of start from the beginning and determine um, what I was going to do. So I ended up in finance. But one of the things that, that really stuck with me was was really trying to understand uh, human behavior and markets. So I started studying a lot about uh, just free time, about all the bubbles throughout financial history and how they get created, how they how they burst. And that just really affected a lot of my a lot of my thinking about investing. So I got very, very focused on thinking about valuation intelligently, uh, thinking about what it meant for a business to have a moat. Uh, so a lot of the, the businesses I started investing in as I got older um, was really around uh, focusing on founder-led companies uh, where technology is really driving a significant advantage uh, and being a long-term holder. Uh, so, you know, I would say the vast majority, I don't have a ton of stocks. I am a big believer in being concentrated in my positions. Um, on the public market side, but those that I own, I've been an investor in for um, some of them for 10 or 15 years, because um, I think in general, that's that's probably the best way to compound over over time. Um, yep. No, no, totally understand. Go big and focus on what you know. Get access to actionable news and market research with all the information you need to invest smarter and profit faster. Start your free trial today at pro.benzinga.com. So we're in the Raz Report with Clover Health CEO, Vivek Garapelli. So we, we, we're at the stage where you, 
left M, you started business, then you went back to Emory and you graduated, right? Yep. Okay. Then I don't know how many years it was until you got back into the health. Well, I don't know when did you enter the healthcare space because we're gonna get to how Clover came about and what you're doing prior, but I want to get um, like from like 2001 to 2006 era. Yeah. So first job out of college was as an analyst in uh, investment banking, so Credit Suisse uh, on the healthcare side. Um, and a really, really interesting experience for me where uh, uh, first real job that I had had. And uh, it, it was interesting. I'd always been kind of a big picture thinker, uh, whether it was investing, and clearly that didn't help on, on some of the, the valuation analysis in college and whatnot. Um, and it was, uh, it was kind of a, an interesting learning experience where a lot of the finance and accounting fundamentals um, I feel like picked up at Credit Suisse and not as much in on kind of the academic side uh, in college and in undergraduate business school. And I think the main reason is I, I think one conclusion I came to is I was I, I learned much better on the job than I did in school. Uh, and, you know, a, a very sort of interesting story where um, I think we had 230, 240 analysts in our uh, investment banking class at Credit Suisse, and I ended up with the lowest um, bonus out of all the analysts. Thankfully, didn't get fired. Um, and it, I, I think one of the main drivers of that was I was so into thinking about the strategy side of business. Um, I was still on a very early and steep learning curve of a lot of you know what I would call basic finance and accounting fundamentals, and that really. Uh, forced me, I think, kind of that second year I was there to really just do a lot of hardcore studying. I remember picking, rereading my corporate finance book and uh, accounting books all over again and really trying to um, uh, absorb a lot of basic fundamentals. Uh, that was uh, pretty impactful, I think, for a long time to come. And I and I decided to make a switch to uh, to Blackstone at that time was a much smaller uh, firm than it is today. And they have a really interesting group called the Bankruptcy Restructuring Advisory Group. So this was now 2003 or so. And at that time, there were some of the biggest bankruptcies occurring. Uh, so you had Fleming Companies, Enron, which everyone's probably familiar with, RCN, Mirant. So these massive, massive companies that ended up in bankruptcy sometimes driven by fraud, mismanagement, poor industry economics, over leverage. And for, for a young analyst like myself going into a firm like that, advising those companies was fascinating because you get to see uh, what's happening with a company when it's on the other side of a lot of bad things that have happened inside of that business and maybe externally as well. And the your, your job is to essentially help keep the lights on, preserve asset value, uh, and many times help sell those assets. And it was fascinating to see the buyers that would come in on the back end of that and see value where a lot of others didn't see value. And that was really neat to me where you had investors who were able to really think about situations through truly independent thought. Um, these are businesses that weren't up and to the right anymore, but very much uh, were a blank slate where there'd be assets there uh, or, some, or some basic, you know, 
core business value that you really had to have your own vision with. Now, granted, you could buy it at a low value, uh, but you really have to create a lot of your own future value for for the investment to make sense. That that was fascinating to me. Yeah, no, I mean, so you got to go deep on these businesses and help them in times of when they were struggling. And so it wasn't just being behind a book. You actually got to get really deep versus when you were at Credit Suisse, bigger teams, you were at a smaller shop and you got to go deep on these companies. Is that an accurate statement? Yeah, and I, I think also you, you – a, a lot of what, a lot of what, uh, what you learn about in terms of balance sheet or finance starts to come alive when things aren't going well. So when you think about cash flow, uh, or, or what it means to have free cash flow, all of a sudden those topics are highly relevant when companies are having a hard time making payroll, uh, are right. not able to pay vendors who are demanding uh, cash in advance of shipping. Uh, so all of a sudden these concepts aren't. Uh, academic anymore. And I think that is that is something that uh, you can really only see when things aren't going well. So doing that, when you had that experience, go, going and looking at companies that weren't doing well, and you see investors coming in and buying them and rehabbing them, did you ever want to become like an activist or uh, like build a business where you're acquiring companies that were doing bad and try to rehab them? Or is that something that you just never did after? Because I know you I know you eventually left investment banking to take on something riskier where you started your own company. I just want to know prior to that, did you look at buying like a bankrupt company given your experience? Yeah. So I, um, uh, so a after, after Blackson, I went to JP Morgan partners at that time it was a small private equity firm. It's interesting experience, but I, I think by the time I even got there, I had that itch to want to, to want to build something. So, you know, at that point I wasn't necessarily focused on, buying underperforming businesses. I was really just looking to build or do something. I just was just enamored with the concept of, of being an entrepreneur. Uh, I think I went into healthcare, uh, probably just driven by, you know, the experience I had growing up and maybe some guilt for not having gone to med school potentially, if I really look back. And so the, the first business I built, this was kind of 05, 06, was uh, partnering with physicians on building uh, outpatient facilities together. So sleep disorder diagnostic facilities, imaging, uh, radiation oncology facilities, and a couple really basic takeaways out of that. I think one, I learned the hard way how local healthcare is. Um, and two, uh, just how much trust physicians have with their patients. And those are two fundamentals that, that have driven a lot of my thinking in healthcare uh, ever since then. Um, and I ended up selling those centers to local hospitals that we had taken uh, market share from. And in 2007, uh, at least in New Jersey at the time, uh, all the hospitals were still not for profit. And a lot of the hospitals uh, that were in urban markets where there was uh, a high uninsured population or a high uh, Medicaid population. So Medicaid is uh, insurance for the lower income population. So those hospitals were struggling, struggling financially for obvious reasons where they had a large part of their population that where they weren't actually generating much revenue on. But as a hospital, you have to take in all incomers. And, and some of these facilities started entering severe financial distress. So one filed for bankruptcy in 2007. And so that time I was 28 or 29 years old. And I think only a decision you can make when you're really... Uh, young and pretty naive. So this hospital was losing 
uh, over $40 million on an unlevered basis. It was, it had a huge amount of debt on it, a few hundred million dollars of debt. And there were no buyers for this hospital. And as a single nonprofit, didn't really have a lot of uh, market leverage. And uh, I got involved in the bankruptcy process, ended up being the only bidder. And I tried to raise capital for it, probably went to over 100 groups, investors, individuals, et cetera. Pretty much everyone said no. And I think if it was, if it was 10 years later, um, those are all obvious red flags on why you probably wouldn't move forward with something. But when you're kind of that young and uh, a little bit blinded by an opportunity that you see, you tend to kind of block out a lot of those things and are willing to take those risks. And one of the advantages of not having access to a lot of capital is you're able to, to get a great deal in buying a business, uh, particularly when there's no other bidders. Um, so I ended up uh, navigating through this bankruptcy process, buying this hospital out of bankruptcy in early 08, converting it to a for-profit. Um, and that whole first year was, was uh, really crazy. So it was a true intense turnaround kind of in every aspect of, of that business. And if I, if I look at it with kind of full hindsight, um, I would call that that first experience probably uh, 30% skill, 70% luck, where there were a lot of things that could have gone wrong uh, that thankfully didn't. Um, and because we had very little cash on our balance sheet when we took over, a uh, little over a million dollars of cash on our balance sheet while we were burning uh, almost $4 million a month. And mm. wow. Yeah. So, uh, and the, the interesting thing is that was, you know, that was my first real experience with just thinking about first principles thinking, even though I didn't understand what first principles exactly was at that point in time. Um, you, there wasn't really a, uh, a, a consulting study you can bring into a situation like that. Um, there's not some sort of handbook on how to turn around a business that's in that type of situation. That's where you literally have to unpack uh, a lot of the key areas of a business. Uh, and it, for example, on that side, one was the labor side on the productivity end. And the other one was the revenue cycle side of it, um, which is billing and collections. And you have to really go down to kind of the most basic aspects and ask the, the simplest questions to see why things were going wrong. And then you have to dig in there and actually rebuild a lot of these functions from from the ground up to actually get uh, a lot of these areas right sized. In in hindsight, it's it's called first principles approach, but at that point you're you have a gun to your head and you have to navigate through through finding a solution to that. Well, so so this the the, the thing that we skipped over, like so you left. You went into this business. Sorry, you went into this business where the, the, the where you partnered with some doctors and built these external hospitals or surgery centers. How did that first deal come about? I just, I mean, because that takes scrappiness from your part. You didn't. You you went and built something. You didn't stay at the bank. You had a finance job. You're probably getting good good pay, and you left there and you went and did this entrepreneurial venture. And I'm just wondering, like, what was that decision process for you to go do that? Was it lined up or was it like a risk that you were taking? Yeah, I think it was really interesting. So it was it was definitely uh, somewhat impulsive in the sense of I didn't know a lot about uh, sleep disorder diagnostic centers. So that was the first area on the outpatient services side. Um, and uh, 
and the first center I I opened was in was in New Jersey, um, and it was really just leveraging the network that I had built kind of over time, um, just in terms of friends and friends, family friends, et cetera, and you just meet physicians. And there there was a couple things at play. One, uh, even today, there's a very big underdiagnosis of sleep apnea, you know, which is a condition that leads to a lot of other more severe chronic disease conditions. And physicians, I think at that point in time, even today, lack real partners. So there's very few business models that are really out to help physicians more to be more successful in their day to day. Um, and that's always kind of been a theme of, of kind of how I've thought about thought about healthcare. Um, and, and so you're, you're pitching, and I, I've always felt that the only way to kind of iterate is just you're always pitching something. And I pitched physicians constantly and that you'd form relationships that way. And that led to uh, the initial business model. And, you know, inevitably through that, you get more introductions that way. Um, and the and really all the capital was raised through these physician partnerships where they put up the bulk of the capital. I'd assemble the, the actual operating entity and build out the business. And these weren't the most complicated businesses uh, in the sense of outpatient services is very different than a hospital business, which is a 24-7 business. And so for all sorts of reasons, it's on another level of, of complexity. Uh, but in hindsight, it was a great way for me to, healthcare is one of those things where you can't just open up facilities wherever you have relationships. Uh, there's significant value to having local market share, thinking about healthcare locally, irrespective of the concept that healthcare payers, et cetera, are, are nationwide. Okay, so now we're skipping it. So this, you have CarePoint Health, right? That's your, the business. CarePoint Health, before Clover, because there, there's Flatiron. So what was that transition? Like what I find very interesting with your experience to start Clover, you're not a newbie coming to the industry. You've seen the the problems in the industry and you, you know, versus people coming to an industry and just trying to disrupt it, you've seen the problems. So go CarePoint, Flatiron, and then how we get to Clover. Yeah, so uh, even within CarePoint, we had uh, bought two more hospitals out of bankruptcy um, and that's what ended up becoming uh, CarePoint. And one of the aspects of the turnaround was the billing and collections part of the business. So we ended up spinning that out into a company called Ensemble Health. Uh, we sold that uh, quite a while ago, maybe six, seven years ago. That's actually going uh, public in a few weeks. So maybe we sold a little too early. That that ended up becoming a pretty significant business. So it's been exciting watching from the sidelines. Is that the revenue cycle business? Revenue cycle. Yep. And I got to 2010 at that point or 2011, and I came to a very basic conclusion about healthcare. While healthcare had done very well for me financially on a personal economic basis, I, I felt that most services businesses in healthcare, their main problem they were trying to solve was really around how to build more business value, how to drive profitability. And a lot of times that was in conflict with consumer value. Um, or a conflict with driving taxpayer value. And, and you kind of look at look across the ecosystem. So if you think about hospitals, the way they build business value is by having the highest acuity patient population, uh, by being able to charge the most, uh, extract the highest rates from uh, commercial insurers. We think about uh, skilled nursing facilities or nursing homes, they generate more business value if someone's in a skilled nursing facility for more days um, pharma companies do better if drugs stay on brand longer. 
Um, if you're an electronic medical record system company, you do better if you're able to charge for data access. And all of that kind of put together um, led to what I would say was just a lot of cynicism that I had developed for a lot of healthcare businesses. And, and really a lot of the cynicism that individuals have about the healthcare industry, I think is well-founded uh, when you just look at a lot of the business models that exist out there. I mean, a lot of them I was very familiar with in kind of the first phase of my career. And a couple of really close friends of mine at the time were, had built a very successful ad tech company that they had sold to Google. Um, and they were finishing up their earnout and really wanted to do something in healthcare. And we took, at least for me, was a very different type of approach in building a business. Our goal was let's actually find a problem we want to solve and that we thought was important to solve. And then let's actually build a business model that benefits from the solution to that problem. Uh, and that led to the founding of a company called Flatiron Health. Uh, and really the thesis around Flatiron was how to bring uh, uh, cancer drugs or cancer therapeutics to market more quickly. Uh, so a little over a third, about 40% of cancer drug usage is what's called off-label, where a physician is using an approved drug for maybe a very specific indication, uh, but uh, a patient has late stage cancer for, uh, let's say, an in, for a type of cancer where that drug is not approved yet, um, and but a physician's trying everything he or she can. Um, and our thesis was that we could build a real world evidence data set of the outcomes for the drug usage for off-label use. We could help pharma determine where there was efficacy uh, and help work with the FDA, Europe and the US FDA on shortening the trial time for phase three trials. Uh, so a really complex uh, technology problem and data problem that we set out to solve, but at the same time took a, a pretty deep understanding that had to be developed on what would be the right business model that would uh, need to be developed to benefit from the solving of that problem. And it, it goes to show the power of really bringing together healthcare domain expertise and technology expertise to solve a singular problem. We ended up selling that company to Roche in 2018 for a couple billion dollars. But if you, if you, if you look at um, companies that were trying to solve problems like that, take IBM Watson, for example, um, they've poured tens and tens of billions of dollars into everything oncology or cancer related. Um, and we're not able to build much business value in that area. But when you're not really able to be super focused and thoughtful around an actual problem you're trying to solve and think through intelligently the business model that could be aligned with that, uh, you end up with um, uh, something that creates no value. Um, and I, that that's stuck with me uh, from the beginning of that of the founding of that company, where I, I've gotten very myopically focused on. Uh, whether it's building businesses that have this theme or investing in businesses that have this theme of where there's a very clear mission and positive impact that a company is trying to push towards, but then importantly, ensuring that there's a very thoughtful business model that directly benefits from the solving of that problem. Um, and I think I think we're going to see more of that thematically. And I think there's, you know, they, they call, I think the term obviously that, that gets thrown around a lot is ESG investing, but I think put really simply, um, it's really pairing impactful mission with the business model that benefits from the solving of the problem underlying that mission.
Got it. And so then after that flat iron Roche, is that kind of like where you're talking about the impact and in, uh, invest in ESG? Is that like kind of where it, it, you got the inspiration to found uh, to start Clover? Or was it something else that you saw through your years in the industry and this was all that culminated? Like what was the inspiration behind Clover then? So I would say almost out of the out of the gates, being part of uh, that whole experience at Flatiron, particularly the first two, three years, my my brain just almost got immediately rewired in, in how to think about problem solving. And really for the first time in my career where uh, technology was was a was a core thought process of how to solve complicated problems. Um, whereas prior to then it was very much around financial innovation or business model arbitrage, which really are a lot the underlying fundamentals of, of a lot of healthcare businesses, unfortunately. And, uh, and so there was a lot of thinking around how do we take what we learn, but potentially apply it to day-to-day decision-making for physicians. So when we started Clover back in, you know, 2013, 2014, the idea was not to create a health insurer or, or get into health insurance. It was really this core thesis of, how do we help physicians make better decisions at scale? So one of the biggest problems we saw was a lot of the industry was geared around uh, determining who were good doctors or bad doctors or servicing uh, the population that was maybe a bit more well-off financially. Uh, When we think about uh, particularly the elderly population where uh, you have uh, widespread presence of chronic disease, um, you have skyrocketing costs, Uh, where the vast majority of individuals over the age of 65, what we call Medicare in the United States, 80% have at least one condition, uh, 70% approximately have two or more. And the biggest problem we thought that needed to be solved was how do we help physicians make better clinical decisions? How do we give them actionable data, prioritized data, accurate information? Um, And the reason why that's so important is particularly over the last 20 years or so, we've seen this hyper growth in the number of therapeutics out in the marketplace, uh, this hyper growth in, in the amount of clinical evidence that's available that can help physicians make better decisions, but the technology physicians have at their fingertips to, to make better decisions with all this, with, with, with therapeutics out in the marketplace and clinical evidence has not improved at all. And that to us, was in our minds, the single biggest uh, problem where we could drive the most positive impact. Uh, but then it really began, kicked off the process of what is the right business model that can benefit from the solving of that problem? That's what led to Clover. So did you, was it years of trying to figure out what that business model is? Or like, so we, I get your whole thing, like there's, a, you want the physicians to be incentivized properly versus, um, you know, not properly. And then is that where you're like, okay, we're going to get into the insurance part of this. We're going to help, you know, attack that part of the business. How did you get into um, this solution? Yeah. So the easiest, I think, um, our preference would have been to have built just a standalone software platform and sell it to provider physicians, sell it to insurers. Uh, it became pretty clear that there wasn't really a marketplace where there was high demand, where one, there wasn't really a mathematical model where health insurers or physician practices 
could justify spending money to buy software that helped physicians make better decisions. So that's where we came to this conclusion where if we wanted to build a valuable business, one, we needed access to data on our customers on a longitudinal basis in a way that they were comfortable with. The second was we need to make sure physicians wanted to engage with our software and that we could offer the software for free to physicians. Uh, and the third was if soft, the software was successful in its goals, where one, it helped physicians make better decisions, those better decisions, then ideally, if they led to lower downstream costs, so reduced emergency room visits, reduced hospital admissions, so that means lower costs, how do we actually benefit as a business? And that's where we decided for us to build the most valuable software, we had to build it inside of our own wholly owned health insurer uh, and focused on Medicare to start. Um, and so that's where we would have data access. That's where, because we controlled the payment stream, we could drive engagement with physicians. That's where we could deploy software for free at scale. Um, and that's where if we were successful in reducing costs, we can pass on those savings to consumers in the form of a few ways, one, more benefits, two, lower cost sharing, uh, and three, wider choice of physicians versus what you see in the marketplace a lot is narrower networks, wider choice being enabled by great software helping all physicians make, make better decisions. Not the easiest way to think about building a business, just given the infrastructure requirements of building a highly regulated business, uh, tons of challenges raising capital for that business, uh, because venture capital investors, particularly in that point in time, wanted to invest in pure software. They didn't like the services component. They didn't like the fact that it was regulated. They didn't like the fact that we were, had to build a huge infrastructure just to build great software. But we knew we had to be stubborn around the business model because that's really what we thought would build the most long-term value. How long did it take from that business from starting it to getting a little bit of traction? How long did that take? I would say... 24, I would say probably about, and it depends on how we define a little bit, but in terms of where we felt traction, I would say about four years where, and out of those four years, a little over two of those years, I was bootstrapping the business, not out of, not out of choice, but uh, just a lot of no's for, from investors for a while. But it took about four years until we were able to deploy uh, what's what's now known at Clover as, as the Clover Assistant, which is our first platform that physicians would engage with, engage with at scale. Um, and that's where uh, it was clear to us that um, we were driving real value at the point of care and that it was truly scalable. Um, but it took us a bunch of years to build that infrastructure uh, and ensure we could actually deliver something to physicians at scale that would be valuable to them and, and to our patient population. You were solving problems for physicians. You're giving the software away for free. You got, you were receiving adoption. And then you somehow got in touch with Chamath Pradapia and, and you developed a SPAC with him. How did that come about or how did you guys find each other or were people, you know, seeking you guys to go public? Yeah. So I, I had first met Chamath back it was 2015 when we were uh, kind of in the early stages of raising outside capital. So that's, we had spoken a couple times. Um, so we got reconnected uh, early part of, of, I think it was maybe June or July of 2020. Uh, but we were, we made a decision April last year to go public and we went down 
the entire process, uh, filed our S1, hired bankers and had kicked off and were kind of well on our way. And I think there were a couple things that made us shift last second to the SPAC side. So we had uh, started accelerating discussions with Schmoth and the SPAC process. I think one, it allowed us to raise more capital in that process. Uh, when you're going public, there there is a limit to how much you're able to raise in a kind of a traditional public offering, depending on the size of your company. We like the idea of, of being able to raise more capital at the outset. The second part of it was, um, I, I don't think we kind of foresaw what was going to happen in the first year of being a public company. Um, but we, when we looked at a lot of the healthcare and health, particularly health healthcare or health tech companies out in the marketplace, it was pretty clear that um, there, it was unclear how they were describing themselves as technology companies, whether they were really even a technology focused organization. And we'd always been pretty thoughtful around ensuring we had a diverse investor group, uh, not just healthcare investors, but also technology investors. And we had learned during that going public process down the traditional IPO process that most healthcare companies end up down this route where you'll end up with a lot of traditional institutions as investors. But even within those institutions, it's going to be mostly the managed care investors or healthcare services investors. And we thought it would be pretty difficult to, to convey in a short amount of time the value that we were bringing underlying our business in terms of the software component the Clover assistant and how that was actually really driving real scale uh, across the entire population. Um, so one thing kind of underpinning a lot of this is Clover today, about half of our population is is of minority background versus about a third for all the national players. And there's a lot of uh, reasons for that, that there's that big of a differential. Um, and for us, technology is a great equalizer, which allows us to service that entire population and have affordable plans across all markets. Um, and so when we think about partnering with Chamath and Social Capital, um, we what we loved about that whole construct was one, you know, him and his team brought a, a pretty sophisticated understanding of technology businesses, how technology can drive real impact at scale. And there was a willingness to really get up the healthcare learning curve. And when you kind of pull a lot that a lot of that together, we've always felt long term that if we were going to be successful, one, we needed to help technology investors get up the learning curve. Um, and two, longer term, we felt long term retail oriented investors are going to be really important for us as well. When I when I look back just in my own, in my own investing experience, I think a lot of the really large technology companies um, have had long term oriented retail investors uh, helping become a strong foundation of, of their long term business. Um, I don't think we expected what happened in, you know, everything that happened this year with kind of the whole GameStop and AMC stuff to to help pull a lot of that forward for companies like Clover. Um, but yep. that's definitely part of our, our thesis as well. Caught the retail investors' interest from the buy side. You have such huge fans of Clover Health. And then there's people that are uh, negative on Clover Health. You've been around the markets. You talked about 96 to 2000. What do you think is going on in the markets? You said you compared to 96 to 2000, but this is more uh, magnified. Is it Chamath and social capital? What's your like, you know, vision on that? Yeah, it, it's I mean, it's something that it's it's an exciting time in terms of 
I'll, I'll say this way. Who knows what's going to happen with the stock market in the next 12 to 24 months? I, I think we're going to have continued uh, volatility up and down with technology companies for the next many years. I think there's. I, I think when we think about how long-term value is being created, particularly if we think about over the next 10, 15 years or so, if the excitement that was happening in the late 90s a lot of that was driven by this belief, if, we, if you kind of remember, new economy versus old economy. Um, I think the reality was uh, that was that was a relevant statement, but the infrastructure still wasn't there. So the infrastructure to really allow a lot of that to come to fruition has taken really another 10 to 15 years. If we think about what unlocked value for companies like Uber, as an example, um, was geolocation. Um, and so there's underlying infrastructure required um, uh, for that. If you, a lot of the companies that are either going public today or are um, in terms of technology companies or are in the late stages before going public, they're not servicing being incumbent companies. They're actually coming out uh, with a mission and a model to take over industries in a way that is driving positive impact. So you take Airbnb that went public or DoorDash, who knows if they'll be successful long-term or not. I obviously have views around that, um, but uh, there's they are not servicing uh, big incumbents. They're either helping small businesses and driving massive scale, creating optionality for consumers, and in some ways directly disrupting incumbent businesses. Uh, Clover under, you know, there is no real circumstances where we're actually servicing United Health as an example. We're not servicing Humana. Um, you know what what happens to Clover long term is dictated by how right or how wrong we are. If we're really right, um, Clover is driving mass impact uh, ten years from now and is valued in the many hundreds of billions. Um, if we're wrong, uh, it's a spectacular failure. Uh, we obviously think we're going to be right, but it's a very different type of company that's going public today than was 20 years ago. And I think there's a recognition amongst, you know, I view myself as, as a retail investor because I invest publicly. Um, I think sometimes retail investors are painted with a broad brush as just day trading stocks. And there's clearly a significant amount of, of that happening, but there's also a good amount of retail investors that are taking very long-term views on companies that they think are driving not just massive impact, but are potentially transforming industries and capturing uh, a large potential of, of future TAM. So we just take kind of general stock market capitalization today. At any given time, you have 15 to 30% uh, that is controlled by retail. But if we look at that other 70 to 85%, a significant percentage of that is index fund driven. Um, so while it's institutional, these are institutions that don't have really any independent ability to make their own decisions. So, so what you're really talking about now is a set of hedge funds and maybe really thoughtful institutional investors that have a lot of discretion over how they allocate capital. And now all of a sudden that cohort, that 20 to 30% is pretty equivalent to retail investors in terms of the size. And then if you take retail investors, a minority of retail investors control a majority of the retail capital. Um, and those minority of investors probably are long-term oriented, um, can hold a company for five or 10 years. I put myself in that category. 
um, and care a lot more about what's the long-term thesis, um, what's the probability that they're going to be right, uh, what are the odds around them really building a true moat and a long-term business advantage, and how are the incumbents going to compete successfully if this company, in this case Clover, is going to be successful. And, and that's really, uh, I think, what a lot of really smart retail investors are seeing with companies like Clover. And in, you know, what myself and my partner in the business, Andrew, we want to prove, uh, I think, obviously, all of our supporters right. Um, but I think the other thing that I think is inspiring to a lot of retail investors is investing in a company that actually, uh, if successful, is going to drive a really incredibly positive impact. Um, and that's something that I think is unique in healthcare uh, today, where there's not a lot of business models in healthcare that are aligned with positive impact on cost and social impact in terms of a diversity of population that, that they're serving. Um, and I think that's something that a lot of companies that have been around a long time are forgetting. I think there's a lot of lip, serv lip service being given to that. I think you're even seeing this with companies that are um, filing S1s to go public. There's a lot of verbiage you'll find in those S1s that are, you know, what I would call ESG jargon, but in reality aren't really legitimate. It, there's there's nothing ESG about a lot of companies that uh, uh, exist today. And if you think about this huge wealth transfer that's going to happen um, in terms of, you know, a couple, a few trillion dollars that is going to move from baby boomers to the next generation, just as happens, you know, from time to time, um, that next generation investors, people who are in their 30s and 40s uh, and even 50s, um, just think about investing differently. Um, and that doesn't mean that free cash flow doesn't matter. Free cash flow is vital. But there's a difference between building for immediate free cash flow versus building to build a massive advantage in the long term. Um, and that's something that I think long-term investors can really think about. They can understand technology at a fundamental level. Um, and it's, it, and you have to have patience around that. I get it. You, you're, you're a moat guy. You have the experience and you're building moat and you're, you're building value for doctors. Is there a ton of market share for you to go after? Do you think you're in the first inning, second inning, third inning, the business you're currently in, or is it more exciting for you to launch a new verticals within your business so the the market is is massive so we take uh, medicare today it's over a, a trillion dollar uh a year industry and i do think we're on a slow walk to 100 percent government funded healthcare. i think it's inevitable to where employer insurance and all that goes away over time um so that i think is is something that will increase the, the market size over time. Um, there's very few players in Medicare Advantage or in private Medicare. So you have about four or five players that control over 60% of the market. Uh, and there are very few players. I think we're one of two organizations that are servicing private Medicare and traditional Medicare. Uh, so the fully funded government Medicare component and then the privately funded Medicare component. and and the reason why we're believers in both is we're, we're not trying to, to form a view as to whether uh, Medicare for all or fully private 
uh, privatized Medicare is the, is the right long-term decision. Um, we just believe physicians in general uh, should be able to make better decisions. And our belief is the most valuable business in healthcare will be the one will be the company or companies that are helping physicians make better decisions at scale. Uh, so in terms of as we think about long-term market value, you know, going back to comp- some of those earlier principles of of local market share, um, we stayed in New Jersey to start for a long time. Now we're expanding in Georgia. Um, in New Jersey, we're number two in individual market share uh, for Medicare Advantage. Um, and there's a lot of, and that's very difficult to do, I think, in health insurance. There's very few companies that have picked a market and gotten to very high market share. If you look at the last 20 years or so, and the goal is to replicate that uh, over time across the country. But uh, it, it, it'll take us time to go from market to market. But there's a lot of stickiness that happens when you're actually partnering with physicians, providing them long-term value, driving down costs, creating affordability um, versus just trying to grow uh, in every market possible. So you may end up with a similarly high growth rate, but you're not going to end up with significant local market share. What is like your first or your worst job or feel free to ask, answer both. It was a company called, uh, I won't call my, my worst job just cause you know, yep. in general, I, I always hated, uh, working for someone. So I would say every job where I had a, an employer was tough for me, but uh, my first job was a company called change address. It was a, an internship in, in college. Um, and so it, this was, I think, 98 or 99. The, the entire business was um, you would go to changeaddress.com. You type in your, your current address, your new address. You make a payment. And then it helps. And you, you kind of list out a bunch of the publications and uh, banks that you work with. And, and we'll reach out to them and change your forwarding address. And so my job and others, other people's jobs there was to you just cold call all of these uh, companies and get their fax numbers for address changes. So you'd sit there and make 40, 50 phone calls and navigate through, you know, these organizations and get a, a fax number. It was, you learn a lot of interesting things, obviously cold calling and a lot of skills, uh, just trying to get mundane information like that. Um, and they ended up selling to, I think, Home Away, which may or may not still be around. I'm not sure. Uh, but that was my first job. Wait, how long were you there for? Uh, it was about four months. And so you got you learned the cold call in there. Yes. I mean, that's I mean, uh, Howard uh, Schultz, you know, Starbucks knocking on doors, learning cold calls, knocking on doors is some like I think some of the best experience. I know it's like people may think it's mundane, but like that's you, you, you probably remove fear from you. You know what I mean? Yeah, I think I think the best uh, removal of fear is failure. So when you fail, you're you realize there's you pick yourself up and you kind of figure things out from there. And it's not as bad as people make it out to be. Exactly. Yep. Exactly. There's you had no fear. I mean, that's that's amazing. That's this great experience. I mean, that, they were he, Howard Schultz from Star Wars was selling copiers door to door, so he got a lot of no's. All right, we want to thank you, Vivek, for coming on. So we appreciate it for coming on. Benzinga's Raz Report, and we will be in touch and uh, talk to you soon. Thanks again for coming on. Thanks, Jason. Don't miss your free chance to tune into Benzinga's very own bootcamp series on November 20th. If you're looking to dive into new concepts and grow your account, this one's for you. 